But uh, I'm ready to take this in if you're ready. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where one should really be cautious when actually shooting at the walls of heartache. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two of my favorite Green Lanterns, one of whom is going to be celebrating a bit of a uh, turning point in his life. He's becoming a man. Well, you know, he's becoming a warrior. And to celebrate that, he's going to have crossovers with two of the best books out there. No, scratch that. One of the best books out there and the Justice League of America. Of course, uh, those two books are, like I said, Justice League and Hawkman. And we're going to be covering the Way of the Warrior storyline after we get to Greenland number 62. Now, if you've noticed, I mentioned Hawkman. And if you know anyone on the internet who knows anyone anything more about Hawkman... I would be surprised if you don't know Luke Giaconetti. He is my special guest tonight. He's uh, the purveyor of the website Being Carter Hall, a Hawkman blog, which is germane to the show. He's also co-host with me on the Two True Freaks website, the uh, vault of startling monster horror tales of terror. And he has his own show about giant Japanese monsters and Daikaiju and Mitsubishi and all those other things. Uh, Earth Destruction Directive, ladies and gentlemen, my very good friend and guest host tonight, Ms. guest host tonight, well, uh, speak, Mr. Luke Jacknett. Hey, Luke, how's it going? I am doing well. Thank you for that introduction, Sean. After that intro, I think most people probably turn the show off. But <laughs> no, I'm glad that you're coming on because I, I checked out on your, uh, I, I checked out on the Bean Carter Hall site that you were rereading the Way of the Warrior story. And I think that's great that you're uh, actually taking a look at some of these '90s comics, especially the Guy Gardner stuff. I mean, you've written in a lot of uh, a lot of times to the show, and it really. Uh, it, I once we came to this point, since we had this crossover with Hawkman, I really wanted you on because you are really knowledgeable uh, about the Hawkman character in all of his iterations, from you know the Golden Age stuff with Carter Hall to the the stuff post zero hour to the silver age stuff so i'm i'm willing i'm really looking forward to getting into this so this should be fun yeah it really should because i i uh, you know I, I had been hunting for the actually for the justice league issues of this crossover for quite a while i had the guy gardner ones and had had the hawkman ones and i finally just broke down and bought the justice league ones off ebay hmm. i could i could finally read this entire story so uh you know i, I mean i i'm i'm like you I, I grew up reading comics in the 90s and, uh, you know, I, I remember when this was published, you know, so uh, really interest, uh, interested in talking about it. Take a look at this Green Lantern stuff, which uh, is all new to me. So Okay, well, that's great. I can't wait to get into it with you. So what we're going to do now is we'll take a little break here. I'm going to plug a few promos in for a couple of podcasts, perhaps one from uh, my esteemed guest here. And when we get back, we'll start off on our coverage of Green Lantern number 63. 
Attention, people of Earth, do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey you! Yes you! Hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do. Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well, then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters, like Gappa, Yangari, and Giawa. We cover everything, from movies, to comic books, to video games. And we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth's Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to twotruefreaks.libson.com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we're back. So, uh... I've got some email from people, but I'll save that for the next episode or so. Uh, I appreciate everyone who's uh, emailed in, and I promise you I will get to those emails on the show. It's I, also probably a good thing since I'm, I'm sure some of them are probably <laughs> I was gonna, I was going to say, you know, I could address some of the emails on the show, but yeah, Luke's probably, you know, about – well, yeah, you know, he sends one almost every show, and I really appreciate that. I mean, I don't know how you find time to write all these you know, I know you write into Andy's show all the time. You're writing into my show. You're just prolific, your listenership and your response to these people. So that's totally awesome. Well, and any podcaster knows that the main source of feedback that you get and, you know, that people appreciate what you're doing is when you're sending – you send in that email because this, this is a labor of love, you know. Oh, yeah. And, well, and uh, I, I've told you many times in email and on the air or off the air actually – about how much I really enjoy Earth Destruction Directive. And, you know, it's it, it a lot of my knowledge of the sort of uh, Daikaiju stuff and the Tokusatsu stuff is, uh, it, it just pales in comparison to yours. Uh, and I have been loving the fact that I'm getting to watch Ultraman since you sent me that DVD set. That's just been a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm glad to, glad to hear that. That is a, that is a great series. Oh. And, that and that DVD set, and the I, I sent you the first half of the of the series. You can get the whole series on DVD for like ten bucks. You can't beat that. No, no, that is awesome, and it's just it's just fun stuff. And if you like giant monsters and just robots kicking the crap out of them, it is fun <laughs> as all heck. But uh, no, cool. like, I'd love to I'd love to turn this into Earth Destruction Directed, but maybe we'll. Maybe that crossover will happen in the future. Well, you know, I will say, you know, someone who probably did like Ultraman. 
is Kyle Rayner. Uh, as you can probably tell, as a lot of his stuff is very anime anime oriented. So we'll go ahead and get into uh, Green Lantern number sixty three, which was uh, cover dated uh, June nineteen ninety five with a release date of April nineteenth nineteen ninety five. Cover price of a dollar seventy five U S. two fifty Canada and a dollar not a dollar a pound twenty five U K. The title was Parallax View Part One: The Resurrection of Hal Jordan. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker Romeo Tangal, colorist Steve Matson, letterer Albert Guzman, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Saying that he can have the ring when you pry it from his cold, dead fingers, Kyle Rayner faces down Hal Jordan for the second time. Hal glibly mentions that he's heard that line before, and that he'll get the ring back one way or another. But Canthed intercedes, saying that since Hal went all bat-guano crazy and killed most of the Corps and all of the Guardians except himself, that it might not be such a good idea for him to be a Green Lantern again. Hal tries to convince Kyle and Canthed that he's all better now, even though throughout the discussion he threatens both of them. Kyle, Kyle gives, or sorry, Hal gives Kyle one last chance, to which Kyle determinedly says no. Kyle says he gave Hal a chance back on Oa, and he saw how poorly that worked out. Besides, things have changed, and he's not going to be—he's not going to give up being Green Lantern. This peeps Hal, causing him to change into his Parallax costume, and the Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. The issue begins. Hal claims that no one believes that Kyle is really Green Lantern, and Kyle retorts that something has changed in Hal. But Kyle is willing to take Hal on a second time if that's what it takes to keep the ring. The two start ring-slinging with Kyle looking to Ganthet for a little bit of help, but the definitive demigod refuses and teleports away, leaving Kyle to get blasted by Parallax. Cut to the Martian Manhunter, enjoying some Oreos and a Ray Bradbury novel when Ganthet appears in front of him. With no explanation, the Guardian teleports Sean along with him. Back in New York City, Kyle and Parallax are brawling all about the Manhattan skyline, with Kyle holding his own against the more experienced Elder. We cut back to see Ganthet plucking Aquaman out of the ocean, creepily leering at Black Canary, grabbing Wally West mid-superspeed run, plucking Hawkman from the roof of Chicago skyscraper, and allowing Oliver Queen to skip out of paying for some not-so-bold chili at a local diner. As all of this is going on, Hal is thrashing Kyle all about New York City, all throughout New York City. Creating a giant ring construct version of himself as Green Lantern, Hal grabs Kyle and smashes him into the ground, knocking the young lantern out. Kneeling down next to the youth, Hal prepares to take the ring for himself, saying that this was destined to happen. But someone takes issue with that statement, and that someone is a costume green arrow, as well as a good majority of the Justice League. And there we go with issue 63. Uh, big old fight between uh, the prior lantern and the new one. Uh, something that we've seen before in Something that we'll probably see again. But uh, what kind of notes do you have of this, Luke? I'll go ahead and let you uh, start up on this. Well, first thing I want to say is I, I really like the cover. Uh, as I guess the cover, I, I can't see a signature on it. Is it by Banks and Tangal? Yeah, I'm pretty certain that looks it looks like Banks and Tangal. And I, I like the cover, too. It's really dynamic, uh, the two lanterns going after each other. Uh, the only thing that I have to say negative about it is, again, with the mask, and the Kyle's mask will evolve throughout the series – but the way it covers his nose, it, it makes me think that, you know, uh, Kyle's got to be a big-time mouth breather. But other than that, it's a really dynamic cover. Uh, yeah. 
and the characters look really on model and how it looks really determined. He's ready to get the ring back. And I love the musculature on Kyle because you don't think of Kyle as a real buff character. No. Um, I know I always picture Kyle as kind of lean and mean, you know, mm-hmm. here he, I mean, you can see his, uh, his shoulders and his bicep. He looks, he looks really jacked and he looks like he and uh, Hal are going to tear each other's heads off. And that, that's just, you see that, especially you see that on the stands in 1995, you're a DC reader. You're going to be hard to resist that cover. Oh, exactly. I mean, it is. It, I I do agree. You know, Kyle is a bit. Kyle, uh, normally drawn in the book, is a bit more lean, but he's he's amped himself up to fight Hal. So you've got to give a more dy- dynamic look. And the musculature isn't that overstated. It's not. It's not life field esque, or you know, to use uh, something that we'd use in the Guy Gardner book. It's not like it's uh, drawn by Mitch Bird, who tends to draw people very muscular. But it's it's a good cover, really good. And uh, my first note, page two, we see uh, panel three, Gant, and panel two and three, Gant that has a ponytail, and um, that is just really, it's we're so deep in the '90s that even Gant that had <laughs> to have a ponytail. Well, he was he was uh, inspired by Superman, so you know, give him a break. <laughs> uh, as if you didn't know, I think Gant that was kind of, I hate to say this, Gant that was kind of the hippie Green Lantern. He was more of the, a sort of free thinking one. Which was why, uh, essentially, when all the rest of the Guardians in the universe were were wiped out, they put all their energy into him because he was the one who thought a bit outside of the box. You know, so they thought that maybe he could choose a successor to be the Green Lantern. You know, the the final Green Lantern. So that clearly, could be it. And clearly, thinking outside of the box is why he stole Wonder Man's jacket <laughs> as well. Oh, but but I'm a big Wonder Man fan. If you're ripping off Wonder Man's costume, you got issues, you know? (laughs) Well, it wouldn't be the first time that uh, DC tried to steal something from Marvel, but who knows? But Wonder Man's costume? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I I really like on on page three, I I really like, first off, the little inset in panel two showing uh, Hal in his classic uh, Green Lantern uniform. Mm -hmm. That's that's just such a classic Silver Age style image of Hal, except he's got the, the white on his um on the on the temples there yeah i mean you know that that's that that green lantern uniform is so iconic you know Mm -hmm. it's drawn real nice like that it it really always stands out to me because i started reading green lantern in the early 90s you know when hal was the star of the book and so that look with the classic uniform but the gray at the temples that's you know that that was a green lantern i remember from when i was a kid starting reading the book so that that's just a neat image here oh definitely and uh, and then of course and and uh, panel five or panel four there, what's up with Hal's little like devious smirk there? It's... Well, it's one of those things that I wanted uh, that I kind of picked up too. It it kind of gives the idea that Hal's not completely being honest. He's like, oh yeah, I've changed. Yeah, you can trust me now. Wink. So <laughs> uh, on page five here, the um, uh, panels two and three is the two static panels. Of um, it's Hal staying next to Ganfit and Kyle is like mulling over what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. I really like the just the body language and there's no dialogue in those two panels, but you can really kind of tell what's going on very nicely. And then, of course, uh, the circular panel inset where Kyle very sternly says no. Yes, that's, well, that's really good. Just panels from a storytelling standpoint. Well, the you know, Banks has really grown as an artist in the Green Lantern thing and the Green Lantern books, and he's. He's really gotten the characters down, and he's really got a, a knack for drawing 
expressions and body language to sort of uh, carry the story along. So this is just a, another good example of it. Yeah, I also like Kyle saying you can both get lost. Mm-hmm. At this point, if if I'm Kyle Rayner, I would be telling Ganton to get lost too. Well, and and no favors. Yeah, Kyle ha- and Kyle has really no uh, link to the Guardians whatsoever. I mean, he met Ganthet in the alley and got the ring from him, and then poof, he was gone. So he has no connection to the Guardians. So he has no compunction about not uh, telling them to go beat cheeks. So I I I think that's awesome. I think that you know Kyle telling off the Guardians is great. I think anytime the Guardians get told off is great. <laughs> it's like, you just make, you, you, when you can make this many bad decisions in a row, is all I'm saying. That's true. Uh, page six, I like on panels two and three, we go from Hal pleading with Kyle, with a, another great um, uh, expression on his face there from Banks, uh, to panel three where he's just, he's gone bad crazy. Yes. No, I agree. Yeah, the, the panel there, where uh, panel two, where he's got that sort of, uh, not really grimace look, but the, well, yeah, it is kind of a grimace look on his face. Like you need to give me this. I am the person who's supposed to be green lantern to the, the panel where his uh, entire body is shaded in red. And it gives him a very demonic look, you know, which will obviously turn in to the next page where he decides to parallax out. Yeah. That, uh, that page is, is, is great. And, and and I've I've uh, wrote in before about my experiences reading Zero Hour, mm-hmm. and even though it didn't make a lick of sense, I was enthralled with it. And part of that was just the vis- the idea of Hal as a bad guy and the visual look of Parallax, and he looks great on this full page splash here. Yeah, uh, uh, this is, uh, and I also wanted to comment on this p- page splash. They've got, if you look in the uh, books, you've got Banks, and I think you've got one of the books is twenty eight fourteen. Yeah. So you've got. Uh, one of the things that we complained about, you know, in the first appearance of Parallax, I think in Green Lantern number 50 was there was this great splash that was pretty much iconic that gave the look of Parallax for the first time. And the fact that it had a big signature at the bottom by Banks and Tangal just kind of took away from the dramaticness of it being in the book. Here it's signed as well by Banks, but it's done more subtly than it's fact that's incorporated into the sort of, uh, background art or the background work in here so uh but again yeah really great panel and how looks really dynamic in the parallax costume yeah and the 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 coloring on the the the, the green energy on both his hands mm-hmm. it's that it's a combination of kind of a, a lime green and then a, a darker green it looks really really sharp and and i like that throughout this they, they kind of differentiate the color of the two greens mm-hmm. and it's something that that would continue i i think i, I know it continued in some of the modern books where if you had multiple Green Lanterns, like, for instance, um, during Blackest Night, when we had, you know, whole cores of Green Lanterns, uh, the main ones, their greens would be colored slightly differently so that you might be able to have a chance of knowing who was doing what kind of thing. Yeah. And I like to see that here. Also, a very, I, I noticed also on the bank signature, if you look, it looks kind of like the Marvel logo. With the, you know, because Marvel has the red with the with the block underneath it, the old Marvel used to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that, now now that you mention that. So, yeah, that is that is neat. And I like we're, we're showing off, um, uh, you know, poor Kyle's book collection getting destroyed again. Yes. <laughs> my, my, my wife's favorite show is the um, the old WB show Charmed. Mm-hmm. 
had a grandfather clock in their manor that would get destroyed like every week. <laughs> and finally, at one point, one of them said, we are forever fixing this clock. You know, this, <laughs> you know, you've got to think after a while, it's just like, it's time to get rid of it. You know, it, uh, unless it has just such sentimental value, maybe it's time to go or move it at least, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not in the middle of where you always get attacked. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I, that's probably a good idea. Uh, on page nine, uh, I, I love the sound effect in the final panel, which is which, I, and I miss hand lettered sound effects like this. But boom! Yes, <laughs> I, I haven't been commenting on uh, the onomatopoeia in the book, but yes, you know, it's always fun when they add the stuff, and yeah, it does look very penciled in. So that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, and and, I, and the perspective there as well is great because it, it's looking around the corner of the apartment. And so you can see, uh, you know, you can see the corner and then the lighting is real good because the corner that is uh, perpend- um, that's perpendicular to mm-hmm. where Kyle is, that's all bathed in the green from the energy blast that Hal hit him with. But the, the wall that we're looking at directly, you can see the green in the window, yeah. but the brick is still red. I, I really like the coloring on that. That's, that's very, very clever bit of coloring right there. Well, and that's, that, that's something I didn't notice until you pointed out because you can tell that's the corner of the uh... – of the outside of the apartment there, because you see the angle up at the top of the, uh, uh, with the molding of the outside of the building. So, yeah, that's nice. Uh, page 10. First off, I'm a sucker. Anytime the Martian Manhunter shows up, uh, then you have him eating Oreos and reading Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> and his comment, it, nothing like the movie. That is so great. <laughs> you know, I, all that, that, that's, that's one of those retroactive things that makes sense. Because if you th- if you think back to um, uh, New Frontier, where John Jones learned about humanity by watching movies, yes, so. <laughs> well, yeah, that is that is sort of a red conning because New Frontier wouldn't have come out for like it came out in the in the aughts, didn't yeah, it? So. At least, uh, probably a decade after this. Yeah, so we've still got a while, but yeah, anytime you can have John Jones sitting around munching on Oreos, it's it's always awesome in the book, and I really like in the uh, background that he's got. Essentially, you know, all the uh, members of the Justice League who would uh, show up at the end to uh, take down Hal, except uh, in Hal's place, uh, there's a, a green arrow. So, there. yeah, but Hawkman's not in it either. But oh, yeah, that's Hawk and Hawkman's not there. But that's uh, you know, that that was that's that certain era of the league. Because remember, this is post this is post crisis. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is the original Justice League. Yep. So that that's the point there. And. It all, you know, that canary is in there instead of Wonder Woman and, and bats and soups aren't there. And, uh, you know, it's John's kind of a sentimental guy. I also like that sitting around reading, he's still wearing his costume. <laughs> that's that's just it. That's just walking around clothes for John Jones. That's how he rolls. Well, it's a good costume. I don't care what anyone <laughs> says. I like it. I, I like any costume that has two bands crossing across a bare, your bare chest like that. I don't know why I like that, you know. <laughs> uh, page 11. Uh, I, I really like all the, the constructs here. I, I like that. Uh, first off, I like anytime Hal uses a giant green fist. I like that. And then in the, the big panel, we see uh, Hal making a construct of a um, uh, an Arthurian knight on horseback wearing full armor. And then Kyle is making something that looks like uh, something from a like Macross or a super robot style anime where it's a guy driving like a little space cruiser. Yeah. And they're charging at each other. Well, and again, it's it's. It's the way that they, that I think you know the the artist and uh, the writer had the uh, characters distinguished from each other, and that Kaya or that Hal uses more. 
not archaic things, but he draws more from uh, like classical literature, while Kyle is much more modern and draws for from modern literature and anime and the sort of uh, manga type stuff. So uh, it's a nice way to contrast the two. And when the two are battling each other, it uh, helps to distinguish the two uh, constructs coming from the characters. But it's all good artwork all around. Yeah, and and again, this is something that I like that has been carried over or was carried over to the modern Green Lantern stuff at least before the New Fifty Two reboot. Mm-hmm. Um, I know at one point Johns Jeff Johns had a. Well, I'm sorry. Am I allowed to say his name on your show? No, you can. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm. I I will say this. I don't hate Jeff Johns. I'm not a Jeff Johns hater, but I do see some of the things that he some of the things he's done has have irked me. The fact that he's minimized the character of Kyle or that Kyle is now sort of considered is secondary to the Hal Jordan character upsets me, but his stories are interesting in general. And you know, there's good and bad. I'm not saying he destroyed the DC universe. That's the Dio's Walt. Before we derail this into it, (laughs) I I, I do want to say this about John's. I think you'll agree with me on this. In fact, I think most, DC fans, love him or hate him, will agree with me on this. Johns is a high-concept guy. Very much so. And uh, and one of the high-concepts that he did with the Green Lantern books, when we had um, Hal, Kyle, uh, John, and Guy all in them at once, was he made sure, and, and Pete Tomasi did this too, mm-hmm. that they would use their constructs in specific ways. You know, uh, Hal would use his traditional, like, the big fist and, you know... Uh, big arrows and you know his his traditional uh, arsenal kyle would continue with the the mecha style and what i would call anime or tokusatsu style uh stuff you know john would do his things like in in uh, mosaic where it would draw upon his his background of architecture and everything be very detailed and design oriented and guy would be you know just force of will it would be just a lot of impactful type um Mm -hmm. So I lo- again, I like that because it's we're drawing from the, it's powered by your will, but it's drawing from your imagination. So everyone bringing their that's what everybody else brings to the table. No one's going to create no two people are going to create the same type of constructs. And it and it's it's a kind of subtle way to point to the characters uh, where their minds at, too. Exactly. You, know, what you get with a lot of characters, because, you know, with Hawkman, if he's not armed with it. When he sets out, you know, that's what he has to work with. He can't make it up on the fly sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I've always liked that about visually. I've liked that about Green Lantern, even going back to, uh, you know, the Silver Age. It's always been a fun thing like that. And I like it when we get two of them here so we can we can play them off each other. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, page 12 here. Uh, again, I love that Dolphin is there with Aquaman. Mm-hmm. This is the 90s. And man, she looks pretty good, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Except for the except for the final panel of that page, the the sort of what are you gonna do look? I don't understand that, but yeah, I can forgive it because it's Dolphin and she's yeah. you know to quote Shag, she's really hot. He's hot, yeah. Thank you, Shag. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh yeah, good stuff. Uh, page thirteen. Um, I love the use of a dinosaur in in a comic book. And oh yeah. A, a giant green dinosaur makes it all the better. See, I only wish that this could have been uh, uh, penned by Mitch Bird because Mitch Bird does incredible dinosaurs. I mean, this looks good. Banks does a good job. But Mitch Bird, uh, in fact, as far as I know, Mitch Bird has gone on to do sort of uh, 
actual books about uh, different types of dinosaurs. He's illustrated, uh, I want to say, paleontology books that uh, describe how dinosaurs look. So, but yeah, uh, and also it is kind of a knock at Hal, I think, that uh, Kyle created a construct of a dinosaur to attack him. Right. Yeah. Um, page 14. I don't know what to think about uh, Black Canary's cameo here. Because, uh, first off, I don't. Canary isn't a type of, of gal, I don't think, who would be admiring herself in a mirror like that. And then Ganthet is such a jerk. <laughs> you have no powers? Never mind, you're of no use. It's like, wow, okay. So yeah. it's, it's like, I guess that legend about all Guardians being assholes is true. Mm-hmm. Well, essentially, yeah. Uh, but you've got to think that Ganthet's also trying to get as many powerful people as he can to try and take down Hal. So... If Black Canary is just here to, you know, shake her butt at Hal, uh, although that may have worked, you know, prior to him turning to Parallax, that's probably not going to do too much right now. I got to admit, I do like seeing uh, Dinah take her wig off because I think, you know, she's a character. We see her as blonde so often we forget that it's actually a wig. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I like about the character as well. And I kind of. I'm kind of glad that her hair has grown out before because the last time we saw Diana in the book, it didn't look Diana. It looked like Diana. It looked like Susan Powder, if you remember <laughs> her from the Stop the Insanity thing. Stop the Insanity! Yes. <laughs> oh, God, it was horrible. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a reference right there. Mm-hmm. I was bad at that sort of stuff. Page 15, again, talking about the constructs. I love Hal using the hammer and anvil construct with on Kyle. And then Kyle's counter is to put on the, the it almost, he almost looks like a little bit like apocalypse with the armor here that he generates for himself. Kind of. He's got his <laughs> helmet looks a little bit more like Aries. Actually. Yes, it does. Yeah. So, it, but, it, but it's this big, just big suit of uh, mecha armor mm-hmm. that, on and and then he he's still wearing the armor when he blasts Hal in the in the panel four here. I just again just the back and forth of the constructs. I really enjoyed this. Just from it's just it's just you know uh, fighty uh, you know fighty McFightenstein. You know thanks Andrew. Mm-hmm. But it's it's again it's it's creative and it's not just two guys wailing on each other. I really like this and I liked again the hammer and anvil is just uh, I don't know that just made me grin. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and that uh, that also that Kyle is holding his own. I mean, how not only does he have all of the power of essentially all the emerald energy they just absorbed from Oa, he's far more experienced than Kyle. And Kyle, even though he's only been Lantern for like a year or so, you know, technically in uh, book time, he's holding his own. So I'm really impressed. Yeah, that, that, it's a good fight throughout this book. Um, page 16, we get... Um, uh, Wally West showing up here in Keystone City. I like that he's referring to stuff that was happening around the time of Zero Hour, um, with uh, Keystone City being destroyed and being rebuilt. Uh, but again, and, and it's the same with um, uh, with the other heroes that we see. They make reference to things going on in their own titles. Mm-hmm. So I, it's something I miss in the modern age of comics that we're we're so afraid of putting a reference to something going on in another book that. Well- because it's not going to look good when it's collected, but it's like it's a shared universe, guys. If you forget that, the whole the whole uh, illusion kind of falls apart here. Yeah, that's true, and that's that's one of the nice things. And I would think that they'd want to do that because, you know, if you put something in a reference uh, or you bring a character that's not a part of the book into the book, 
and you reference something that's going on in that character's book, that might make the reader go, hmm, I wonder what this means, and go pick up that book, generating another sale. But, yeah. you know, the, I like uh, I like the fact that on that page uh, 16, when uh, Ganthet disappear, disappears with Wally, you get the image of on one side a really fast-looking sports car and a tortoise. <laughs> and I don't know why, you know, the fastest man alive would be running through a really fast sports car and the tortoise. I don't know whether that's some sort of imagery that was supposed to mean something, but I found it amusing. Yeah, and the tortoise looks like it escaped from the pet shop that that's behind it, like escaped like three days ago, perhaps. <laughs> Just made it out to the sidewalk by now. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I have stopped my car to move a turtle across a street. <laughs> In South Carolina, you get them. You, you drive through a, a like a, a relatively wet area. You'll get the turtles come out of the swamp, and then you'll see them get hit. And I was driving up Highway 123 once, and I saw a turtle, and there's nobody around. I stopped, picked them up, moved them out of the way. It's like, go on, little turtle. Be free. Take <laughs> your time, though. Yeah. Uh, at least he didn't bite me, I guess. That's good. Uh, page 17, again, giant fist. Only this time, it's a giant howl with the giant fist. Oh, yeah. That's that's uh, that that's pretty neat because because Hal the giant Hal looks he looks kind of like Bizarro Hal a little bit with his face. Well, he looks very menacing. He's got you know he's got the huge you know menacing grin. It's it's creepy as all get out. Yeah, it's and and again the green skin uh, or the green uh, gloves because they're the white now is a real pale green mm-hmm. on gloves. It just it looks again it looks like uh, just it's great creative use of it. I love it. And uh, again, the coloring looks fantastic here with the, the, the off green energy Hal combined um, with holding Kyle and then parallax in the foreground. All of it just really the colors. It's a lot of green, but all the greens are distinct and it really pops, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to mention, you know, I thought it'd be kind of ironic having you on the uh, show and having a giant green creature uh, coming out of the water to uh, ravage the city. That's that's pretty much uh you know your your cup of tea right there isn't it right if if ha- if giant hal had turned and smashed the brooklyn bridge we'd be right in earth destruction <laughs> oh awesome yeah uh page 18 we cut to chicago with hawkman and uh this is interesting hawkman had only had this look uh this particular look for about four or five months at the time of this book coming out um because when volume three of hawkman started he was still wearing a variation on the hawk world style black full bodysuit with the metal wings okay so this so this is definitely the modern or i should say contemporary hawkman and uh and his reaction um to ganthet to immediately draw his his sword on ganthet that that's pretty accurate too mm-hmm. yeah. he looks good here i i like the um you know the uh the, the helm the the honor wings on the helmet is always something that i look for when uh you know um non like atypical artists draw hawkman because that, that's it. the perspective for the uh, honor wings is easy to screw up. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with Hawkman, the honor wings are the bird wings on his helmet that are behind his ears. Because if you read your early Silver Age Hawkman, Kubert uh, designed the helmet to not have those wings. And then when Kitar Hall distinguished himself, he got his the wings on his helmet. That's why they're called the honor wings. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's it's. Uh, and, and I love, Gant, that you're acceptable. There's at least an aspect of him within you. And this is, again, a nod to what had been going on in Hawkman, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to the Hawkman stuff in, in Way of the Warrior. But again, I like that they make reference to it. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like it. It's a, And the, again, the artwork 
looks really good. Hotman looks very beefy, and you know, I guess you know uh, that's Hawkman there, beefy yeah. and shirtless. And especially again in this era, the the beefy aspect, you know, that rich meaty aspect, you know. <laughs> Uh, page 19, we get a little more Earth Destruction Directive here as uh, Giant Hal <laughs> smacks around Kyle and smacks him into the, uh, in, into the I, I guess it's into the sidewalk as they're in the, uh, they're still in the East River here. Mm-hmm. The harg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't care what kind of uh, ring construct shielding you've got, that's going to hurt. And, that, and that, the impact there just look, really looks nice. I like the speed line and everything. Oh, yeah. Good panel. Um. Okay, uh, I need I need to call in my friend Adam here for page twenty because I I could have sworn Oliver Queen was dead at this point, wasn't that he? Was, that was my thought too. I thought uh, because I, I remember in uh, a couple of episodes ago in Guy Gardner Warrior number twenty nine, the one where the guy had the opening of the Warriors Bar, Diana Lance was hanging around with the Connor Hawk version of Hawk, uh, not Connor Hawk version of Green Arrow. And I thought to myself that Green Arrow was actually dead at this time or gone some way. So, yeah, the fact that he shows up in this book is I don't know whether it's in continuity or not. I'm certain someone will write in and tell me about it. But, yeah, to see him here is kind of odd because I thought Connor Hawk had been around for a while and had taken on the mantle of Hawk or of uh, Green Arrow. And it only gets weirder when later he's wearing Connor Hawk's costume. Exactly. And I'm wondering if this wasn't just one of those things where. You know, Ganthet was supposed to approach Connor uh, to come in as Green Arrow, and you know they just you know decided to bring in Green Arrow because there was more of a connection with Hal. So I don't know. I mean, uh, again, any Green I've, I'm not a Green Arrow expert. I'm a Hawkman fan by definition. I can't be a Green Arrow expert. <laughs> any out there? Because I'd love to know what's going on with this. I mean, may, maybe Ollie was just on the lamb and Connor took over and. I've, I've never read any I, I can count on one hand the number of issues of Green Arrow I've actually read in mm-hmm. my life. So <laughs> and that he doesn't leave a tip. Typical Ollie, you know. <laughs> well, you know, uh, he, he expects uh, the, you know, the government will pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> the, OK, I promise I'm not going to go off on rants or we're not going to get political on the show. But, yes, it is Ollie. You have to realize he's a huge liberal. As a we don't want somebody on iTunes calling us fringe right. Oh, <laughs> You went there. I had to go there. <laughs> it's 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 my contractual obligation. All right. And then uh, page twenty two. This is uh this is a Justice League I would read right here. You know, um the the merged Hawkman, the Martian Manhunter, um you know Aquaman in the Harpoon days, Wally West and Oliver Queen. I would read that Justice League book in a minute. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, I mean, that's, uh, you know, you put, I mean, again, this ain't rocket science, it's comic books, but <laughs> put characters together we want to read and we'll read it, DC. Ex- exactly, and that's kind of why I'm, I was so kind of, not disillusioned, but just sort of disappointed with the Justice League issues. And I was collecting the Justice League up until uh, it ended and then Morrison took over, and... This, I agree, this is a Justice League that I would like to see, and what we get... Uh, here in the next couple of issues is just the Matt Justice League. Yeah. Especially with uh, Diana Prince, downtown Julie Brown. Well, and you know, part of it was that there were at this time, there were three Justice Leagues, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, because there was there was Justice, there was Justice League America, Mm -hmm. which was um, the team that Diana was leading. 
Then there was uh, the Justice League International, which was a team that John was leading, John Jones. Mm-hmm. And there was the Extreme Justice Group, which is like which is Captain Adam, I think. Adam and his crew. So there were, you know, there was it was the first attempt to franchise the Justice League. And this was, you know, and, and, if, and if you weren't reading comics in the 90s, this may seem like an odd thing because nowadays the Justice League is franchised. You yes. Know? Uh, but this was a response to uh, the, the X-Men book being franchised so successfully for Marvel. And DC wanted to say, well, you know, we can, you know, we can do that. Uh, oh, excuse me. It wasn't Justice League International. Justice League Task Force was yeah. the one that was leading, not International. But so it was DC's attempt to fr- uh, franchise the Justice League, much like the X-Men had done. And, and it really didn't work because what you got was a dilution of what the, uh, you know, what made the Justice League great, which was always it was the, the cream of the crop kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Avengers, where the Avengers, you know, after the after two years of the Avengers, remember we got the kooky quartet, and that kind of set the stage for we can have, you know, uh, two or three of the top flight Avengers, and then we're going to have some B list and maybe even some C list, and and we can make it work because that's the way the Avengers work. In the Justice League was A list for so long, and before you got to the Detroit era. And then they didn't seem to know what to do with the book for a while. You know, it got the Blahaha League, and we got the the Justice League Europe and the Justice League International, and and the, so I was like, oh, well, zero, we'll we'll franchise them out, and it it really didn't work, which is why I think a lot of people don't have, and I'm not saying they're not they may not be good comics series. I haven't read them all, but I you very rarely hear people lament, man, I miss the mid '90s Justice League. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't until we got the Morrison League the JLA book that the book came back to being the magnificent seven that you hear people really talk about the justice league in the nineties. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that there weren't good things in, because I was reading the uh, justice league book in the nineties up until the uh, transitions in the Morrison run. And it wasn't that there weren't good things in it. It was just, it, it, it was fewer and far between, mm-hmm. but you know, there were, there were some, there are some negative things that happen in a lot of the books, and I, 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 I kind of point toward editorial trying yeah. to take over what the writers were doing at the time that probably made uh, some of these things not as good as they could have been. But yeah, very, very common problem in comics in, the, in that era too, yeah. where it got to the point where the editors were basically writing some of the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've discussed that before. I, I talked with Thomas DJ about that, especially about the uh, Titans books at the time, and he said uh, a very grim and, and not a not a good time to be a Titans fan. So, but uh, yeah, overall a good book and a nice cliffhanger ending with yeah the essentially uh, what would have been a great version of the Justice League uh, getting ready to take on Hal's Parallax. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next issue. So. Uh, do you have anything else to say about this issue? I think you hit the nail on the head. It was, you know, again, from that great cover promising a showdown between Kyle and Hal, that's exactly what we get. And I think if you pick this up off the shelf, even if you hadn't been reading Green Lantern, you know, I think that anybody DC fan would, would dig this, you know, especially if you were, uh, uh, you know, the right age, that, that you remember the 90s with any type of fondness. You would certainly like seeing this, uh, this, this throwdown and then this cliffhanger. Well, and even at the time, if you aren't completely knowledgeable about uh, Hal or Kyle as Green Lantern, if you only have a sort of secondhand or just general knowledge of the characters, there's enough in there story-wise that fills you in that you're not lost. 
Yep. So credit to the writers and credit to the artists for bringing forward a really good book. But uh, since we're done with the Green Lantern book, I will take my obligatory break here, uh, plug in a promo or so, and when we come back, we'll go ahead and start up uh, in the epic coverage of the Way of the Warriors storyline with Guy Gardner, Warrior number 32. Back in a minute. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fans. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. And welcome back. So let's go ahead and get into our coverage of the beginning of the Way of the Warrior storyline, starting with, of course, Guy Gardner Warrior number 32. Cover dated at July 1995 with a release date of May 2nd, 1995. Cover price $1.75 US, $2.50 Canada, pound $25 UK. Title was Way of the Warrior Part 1, Give Me a Space to Call My Own. Writer was the ever-awesome Bo Smith. Pencil in this time out was Joyce Chin. Inkers were Ken Branch, Annie La- Andy Lanning, and Rod Ramos. Colorist was Lee Lowridge, and letter Albert Guzman with editor Eddie Braganza. As surprising as it sounds, our issue still opens up with Guy Gardner, Angry as All Get Out, tossing people around. But this time, it's not bearded Norsemen, but the members of the then-current then Justice League, who just casually forgot to tell Guy that the love of his life died under their watch. Booster Cole tries to make an excuse as to why they didn't get the news directly to Guy, but the warrior isn't buying it and punches the pandering gold into a wall. Hawkman and Nuklon try and tackle Guy, but he just hulks out some more and tosses them aside. Then Obsidian and the Flash are next up on the list to take Guy down, and they fare about as well as the rest of them. Fire and Blue Devil are then next on the list to try and stop the Rampage Warrior, but Guy absorbs their attacks, saying that B was all stabbing him in the back, jealous of his relationship with Ice. As Guy is about to pop Blue Beetle's head like a grape, downtown Julie Brown comes to the rescue to calm Guy down. Wait, what? No. That, that, that's Wonder Woman? <laughs> Seriously? Sort of. Okay, whatever. Her soothing words, calming touch, but mostly her boobies, cause Guy to stop tearing through the leaguers and focused on the real antagonists, the attacking crags. Wonder Woman and Guy head to the Warriors Bar while the rest of the Justice League take on one of the crags attacking the JLA headquarters. The League is handling the single attacker, 
except for Blue Devil, who's looking to make a few bucks off the movie rights to the battle. Meanwhile, Guy and Diana arrive at Warriors to witness Buck and crew defending the bar from the two Tormach minions. Got Diana and Guy jump into the fray, and the McFightenstein is on. Arisia gets hit by a piece of flying debris, which royally peeves Guy, causing him to lay a red-headed beatdown on the artichoke-headed aliens. But at the same time, our dynamic duo is being smacked around by the crags, the satellite leaguers are putting the hurt to the single crag until it runs back home to its mommy. Hawkman says they'll trace the alien's trajectory and take the fight to them. Back at Warriors, Diana and Desmond are assessing the damage, which includes a badly injured Aresia and a morphing, out-of-control Guy Gardner. That's the end of Warrior number 32. So uh, we'll go ahead, Luke, uh, hit us with some notes. I tell you, the, the cover by, uh, I guess it's by Mark Campos. Mm-hmm. It's, a guy looks, I mean, every, I don't know. It, I, it's a dynamic cover, but it looks kind of out there, you know. Uh, yeah, Cam- Campos has not been my favorite artist on the Guy Gardner book. And unfortunately, uh, I think last issue was Mitch Bird's uh Final, well, not really final issue, but it was his final issue for a while. And Campos took over for him after this. And he's trying to ape Bird and his uh, over exaggerated physicality. But right here, things look really off. I mean, yeah, Guy looks all sort of wonky and. Yeah. Just I mean, look Diana looks like a harpy almost. <laughs> not sure what Nuclon is actually doing back there. I mean, I love the colors. I love all the red, especially for Guy Gardner book. But I don't know. That's well, and uh, not only that, but Wally, he looks like you know his spine has been elongated a couple of extra feet because his legs are right down near uh, you know Guy's yeah. legs, but his body's being held up above him. So it looks like Guy may have snapped him in half. Ugh. He's vibrating through him. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, pages two and three, the the two page splash. I. Um, I Chin has a again a very '90s style, and uh, and and it's hard to tell which inker handled which pages because they all they all look pretty pretty much approximately the same to me. Uh, Again, it's I don't have a particular problem with this because again I I grew up reading comics in the '90s, so I'm used to this. But it is I can see how this would be jarring going from a a lot of modern artists to something like this, like uh, like look at Nuclon's thigh there. Oh my God, yes. Uh, Or the way that that Ice Maiden's leg is bent. Or and, and her and her hips and her back. It's like this is this was standard stuff that you'd see in 1995, but <laughs> I could see where some people might not care for it. I mean, I like this just because I like the composition with Guy kind of in the background blasting everyone to the foreground, mm-hmm. and everyone is is either tumbling over or Hawkman's trying to to deflect the blow, you know. And uh, so I, I like it. And again, it's it's a good way to start. I, I like having a splash page right at the start, especially when it's it's an issue that's you know, 75% fight. Yeah, well, and that's what you're going to get with a lot of Bo Smith stories. You know, it's pretty much fight, 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 fight. But uh, it's good fight. Uh, Bo Smith does a good job at drawing action se- or scripting action sequences. So I'm not disappointed with a fighting issue in Guy Gardner. Yeah. Uh, page four, 
Guy, I, again, a lot of people might not remember Guy Gard, not Guy Gardner, uh, Booster Gold wearing this armor. Uh, I do. <laughs> I wish I could forget it. Uh, I don't know which is if it was this or Captain America's armor that made less sense. <laughs> you know. Well, I guess the whole thing after the fight with Doomsday, uh, Blue Beetle tried to, you know, his armor was all smashed up and his shield generators and all that was messed up, so he had to go to his good friend uh, Blue Beetle to try and redesign in armor and. He made the most 90s armor he possibly could have. So <laughs> thankfully, there's not giant tubes coming out of the back like the stuff that Guy Gardner was wearing. So that that's I guess we can be thankful for that. And I, I do like Guy's morphed uh, gauntlet on the panel one there that he smacks uh, uh, Nuclon. I guess it's Nuclon mm-hmm. and Blue Beetle with. And I guess Obsidian, yeah, Obsidian's there in the corner, too. <laughs> I like that big spiked, almost Cestus style gauntlet that he's got. Oh, yeah. That's neat. And, you know, and... and uh, and, and you've talked about this on the show before, rather than just morphing his hands into guns and such, this was a more creative use of, mm-hmm. of the Voldarian armor, you know, to actually uh, use it in, in a way that it's he is a warrior, not just a gun toting madman. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the like I've said before, that's what Bo Smith wanted with the character. He wanted him to be able to make weapons, but not, you know, guns, you know, yeah. he he. Smith has been commented that, you know, if they wanted to, Guy Gardner could have grown up, you know, a kitchen sink out of his arms if he wanted to. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I enjoy it more when it's more fisticuffs than giant guns. Yeah. And, and speaking of fisticuffs, on page five, we get, um, you know, Hawkman and um, I keep wanting to call him Adam Smasher. Mm-hmm. Because I first read the character when he was called Adam Smasher in JSA, but he's Nuclon here. Uh double-teaming Guy and Guy basically hulking up to get bigger than him. Mm-hmm. What's funny is that in the caption, he says, uh, our guy's um, thinking with Metalhead Booster out of the way, uh, it isn't long before the big red-haired kid and my, quote, old pal Hawkman decide to play a little dog pile. And what's funny is that Guy would not recognize Hawkman at this point because the Hawkman that he knew didn't look anything like this other than he had wings, and those wings were metal. So I, it just struck me as funny. Yeah, I'm, he, trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to remember because he wouldn't, you know, the in the JLI issues, the Giffen De Matteo stuff, he didn't deal with the uh, the sort of uh, Silver Age Carter Hall character. Yeah. He did. De- he dealt with the Thanagarian, you know, Hawkman. Yeah, who had at, at this the and, and in post crisis, the Thanagar, you know, uh, Katar Hall first came to earth in hawk world and he had the metal wings like a wingman so i mean i don't have a i mean it, it's probably just goofing on it because he calls him old friend in quotes or old pal in quotes yeah but again I, and i like i like guy hulking out here because you know um uh, nuclon and, and hawkman especially especially now hawkman after he's been merged is, is huge i mean he's that's part of his character now is that he's like almost seven feet tall and built like a a, a brick poop house you know mm-hmm. And uh, and guy just hulks up beyond him, which, again, is is seems kind of like a perfect fit for how Chin is drawing this, you know, because it because um, Chin's kind of 90s style over exaggerated anatomy looks really good when guys anatomy gets over exaggerated on purpose. Oh, yeah. Oh. And uh, sa- same thing on uh, uh, page seven when uh, he absorbs all of uh, fire's energy. And turns kind of into even more Hulkish, but he looks kind of like Hulk mixed with Colossus here with the metal skin. Yeah, he kind of does. And he, you know, I, this is one of the things that I'm not really certain that they really 
played with in the book of him being able to absorb powers and throw them back at, at, at you know the people who threw them at him but you know it works here i guess and it's a nice way for Kai or not Kyle but for guy to uh get some dialogue in on uh B or fire because yeah. eventually uh on down the line uh things are going to happen between B and guy and it'll be subtly hinted that something went on between them but yeah, yeah and i don't know and, and considering that normally you think of fire just as the uh you know kind of the the character that she was during justice league like around the time of doomsday and stuff it's it's interesting to see her being very uh sort of aggressive towards guy and very negative towards guy and we see that throughout the this entire crossover and um and i mean she makes a point of calling him an insensitive jerk that ruined Tora's life mm-hmm. and then and it's it's interesting to see her it, it, it does present fire in a more rounded manner i think than a lot of times that she was presented and of course guy just throws it right back at her because uh you know and and one thing about Guy, and I know, and this is something that you've talked about quite a bit, is that he is, especially under Bo Smith, a very well-rounded individual mm-hmm. who has a lot of you know quirks and, and a lot of admitted flaws. But he's a guy that's always working to do the right thing. But in this instance, he's he's so blind with with rage right now that he can't see through it. All he can do is just throw anything back at somebody. Yes. And and throw it right back in their face and then uh, and then counterattack. And he's and that's I've always seen that kind of as guys uh, biggest flaw as a as a human is that. And, th- and this is true, I think, of anyone who has any issues with with anger is that, you know, anger is like any other type of addiction in that it's very difficult to stop it because it's the way your body is wired. But unlike, say, like alcoholism, you know, the the anger is it's it's something that's always there you can't remove it all you can do is contain it you know you can remove yourself from a a narcotic or you know some kind of uh, any any type of physical dependency you might have on something exterior but your anger is always with you you can all you can do is contain it and when it when it explodes it'll explode and that's what happens to guy here he's finally pushed about in about ice's death and being the jla ignoring him about it and, and when they knew how he felt about ice and he's just going to cut loose mm-hmm. well it's interesting you know the parallels between the that you mentioned the par- parallels between guy's anger and another character in a different book you know in a different company that tends to get angry and grow large and smash things so yeah it, it's interesting the parallels here especially the you know obviously the design now guy is obviously a bit more uh, coherent in his speech patterns than that other character, but uh, you, you can see the parallels there. But yeah, that's that's a good statement about it. Yeah. Um, page eight. Okay, I think we need to tackle Diana's outfit here. <laughs> uh, yeah, we might as well get it out of the way. It's, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's like a leather bustier with biker shorts with stars on the side mm-hmm. and they have like a little belt like a pair of belts on top of the biker shorts i don't even know if that's i don't know what that is but it definitely it goes way too far down yeah her crotch area and uh it's it's an and, and it's an awful design is and and this is because she was not wonder woman anymore mm-hmm. this is when artemis had won the challenge and become the new wonder woman over in wonder woman 
And so that's why she just goes by Diana and is wearing this. It doesn't explain why she still has the WW on her pants. Mm -hmm. And, and the really sad thing to me is look at her hair, look at her musculature of her legs, look at, uh, you know, her hand, she's got the Kirby hand outstretched. Yes. Imagine that this drawing, except in her correct costume. And then it is a beautiful drawing of Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, yeah. But if she by this costume. Yeah, if she was in her Wonder Woman costume. This would have been so dynamic and it would have been so it really would have been amazing. You know, even the fact that they've got cheesecake, you know, ice maiden behind there. You wouldn't have been distracted by that because this would have been an iconic pose for Wonder Woman. So. What is ice maiden doing there? It looks like she mm. looks like she fell into this from an, uh, an issue of Youngblood. Gate <laughs> or, or Bloodstrike or one of those Rob Liefeld image books. I mean, she's OK, fine. I mean, I know her costume is designed to show off as much cleavage as possible at, any, at all times. But why she got her, you know, her hair falling in front of her face and her her finger on her lips and her knees bent. It's like, OK, did are you going to attempt to seduce guy out of attacking the Justice League? Is that, that your plan here? That's essentially what it looks like she's doing. It, it looks like a, a totally 100 percent cheesecake pose. And I don't know why it's included here. It does nothing to benefit the character and it does nothing to benefit the story it's almost and it's almost as if she was drawn in behind diana because they said wait a minute what happened to ice maiden yeah because everybody else gets a scene except her she shows up on the on the first splash and then that's it so i, I don't know yeah. Yeah. um page nine I, i'm i like i like when we see wonder woman as being the voice of reason and mm-hmm. diana doing that here uh, is is great and and it's to the point that she's the only one who can calm guy down and i think that says a lot about both of them it says a lot about wonder woman's kind of endless uh you know bountiful compassion and love for others and it shows that guy again you know he's he's in a rage he he's he's seeing red literally almost he can't you know all he can do is attack because that's he can't control himself but when Diana gets him to stop and talks to him and calms him down, you can see um, as he's physically, his body is shrinking down in the last two panels. Uh, I guess it's panel, let's see, panel four here, the, the look of just deflation on his face. Mm-hmm. As he's, he's recognized what he's done and that this is the absolute wrong way to do it. That the Justice League was at fault for what they did, but this is not making it any better. And you can almost... You know, you can make the connections like, well, what would Tora think about you doing this? Yeah. You know, and I, I, I agree with you. It's great that Diana is the voice of reason. And defi- despite the fact that she is probably the most powerful warrior and the most powerful member of the Justice League uh, that we have assembled here, the fact that she approaches Guy and reasons with him is, is a testament to her character. And it's it's something that Bo Smith has. Uh, and we've talked about this before on the show that. uh Bo Smith had an idea that Guy and Wonder Woman would see each other as equals, and we get to see a little bit more of that. And uh, supposedly he had other ideas to uh, have uh, things go on with uh, Guy and Wonder Woman, and I really think this is just Bo Smith writing the character in just a perfect, wonderful way. She's very strong in that she knows that she could take Guy out, or she could, you know, if she had to, she could take Guy out. But she's approaching it in a way that's more compassionate and more caring. And it, it's a testament to her as a character, and it's a testament to Bo Smith writing the character. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 
let's see, pages 12 and 13, the two-page vertical splash. Nothing says 90s like a two-page vertical splash, right? Mm-hmm. The, um, and, I, and I like Hawkman uh, he, uh, dropping the alien knowledge, being a, a, a you know a, a wingman of Thanagar a little bit at this point. He would know the uh, about the Tormox and their, you know, what type of uh, agents they use. So I thought that was a nice bit of uh, of, of just you know a, we need somebody to do the exposition. Hawkman makes sense because he's the only one who would know anything about this besides Guy. Exactly. So. You know, I want to make one one little quick comment. Back on page twelve, yeah. uh, again commenting on the relationship between uh, between Guy and Diana. The uh, after they get to the uh, puddle jumper or the league cruiser, and uh, Diana says, "No, I'll drive," and Guy has to make the comment. Nice outfit. <laughs> of course, Diana's just thanks. I, I wish that last thanks had had the icy bubble. <laughs> You know, I think I don't think it would have been icy, but I think it just would have been sort of blase as like, you jerk. <laughs> I mean, and not uh, not in a mean way, but in just a sort of friendly, uh, you know, companion type way. Yeah, but, uh, we get the uh, the sequence next, the extended fight with the uh, the crags, which is uh, which is is good. I mean, it's 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 a lot of kind of straight action and um, and, and again, not. Having not been reading Guy Gardner, um, I'm not familiar with a lot of the the folks here. I mean, I know Lead obviously and Tiger Man, mm-hmm. but it's still neat. And and it and it's, uh, you know, like on page 15, Guy turns his uh, his the second panel here, which is kind of an odd direction. You know, Guy turns one hand into a claw, the other into a, a morning star, and smashes uh, one of the crags in the head. Which is great, and he's got this insane grin on his face. He he looks with with this grin. He looks like Eddie Brock. He looks <laughs> about to venom out and and tear these guys apart as venom. But that would have been a crossover right there. Ooh, that... Two two crazy guys with buzz cuts. <laughs> but I and I like the I mean I like the action here. You know, uh, uh, Aricia looks real nice on on page sixteen. Oh, it's the fucking. <laughs> jam outfit oh so uh, you know the fact that it's just basically a corset then then like a piece of fabric covering up her private parts it's uh it is it looks- I, I swear to god when i get to talk to bo smith and i'm going to endeavor to do that when i get to interview bo smith i'm going to go ask him what the hell is up with Aresia's outfit it's got to be a question it's like she stole it from Emma Frost or something, you know? Emma Frost wouldn't even wear something this embarrassing. <laughs> Match that something. It would have lace on it or something with that. That's true. And yeah. a nice cape. Nice cape, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but, uh, I, again, I, the fight is the fight seems to me that it's nothing really... Uh, I, I didn't have a lot of notes for it. I, I mean, I enjoyed the fight. It's uh, It just kind of, uh, you know, we had to draw, had to start the... Um, the Tormox aggression at some point mm-hmm. page 21. I don't know if this is a perspective issue or what, but in that first panel, Hawkman is gigantic. I mean, I mean, I don't know if fire is standing like a level below him. <laughs> Got Like his crotch. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think he's supposed to be 10 feet tall. So I don't know what's going on with that image there. Yeah, that is a bit out. I mean, because you would think if, if fire is in the foreground, Hawkman has to be just immense there because yeah, that is, yeah the perspective is definitely off. Yeah, uh, and then on the the last page, 
uh, and maybe you can shed some light on this. And, and I know we, you've talked about this a little bit on the show that I've heard about guy not being in control of his powers, but he, he looks all sorts of messed up on this, on this last page on page 22 here. Yeah. And the thing is, this is just kind of dropped. I mean, they dealt with this kind of back uh, a couple issues ago where, uh, uh, in the action 709 and then i think the guy gardner number 31 or 32 31 i think it was where uh guy went to superman to try and figure out what the heck was going on with his morphing powers and got to a kind of tussle with him no i think it was issue 30 that's what it was but um he basically from then has been pretty much in control of his powers but now he's turning into like this giant morphing uh this blob basically and the thing is it's not even picked up in the next book right it's just left and it's not even picked up in the next guy gardner warrior book so uh, i don't know what to say here it's just it confused me and 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 along with the arishia tiger tiger man saying that arishia is hurt hurt bad is that picked up again later after way of the warrior I'm trying to remember. I don't think we really see. I mean, we see more of Aresia, but I don't think we see her uh, recovering anything. I don't think we see her, uh, you know, injured or broken up or, you know, bandaged up or anything. So it, it may be just another thing that was kind of glossed over. So actually, in a couple of issues, we'll see Aresia sparring with Wildcat himself, Ted Grant so much for your vast comic book knowledge yeah it's 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 one of those things where uh it's clear that that smith i think had something he wanted to do with this and then it just never got around to doing it possibly well again i think i i i don't want to i don't want to attribute everything every problem to editorial uh finagling but i'm wondering if this was just one of those things that editorial said we're going to do a crossover and this is how we're going to do it and bo smith just kind of had to run with it yeah uh, and and you know i mean it could be that it could be that you know it was because i mean this was i mean the cliffhanger is here and then you know obviously it, do, it doesn't get picked up in until justice league america so there might have been a miscommunication between the two writers mm-hmm. it had been something that smith wanted to touch on later on in the series and just you know it never worked out never got around to, you know, wanted to go in different directions, lost interest in doing it. It didn't make sense. You know, I mean, you see this kind of stuff a lot, especially in comics in this era where there'll be these, these dangling plot lines that are never resolved because it just, well, you know, we did something else and then we couldn't do that anymore, you know, or something like that. So makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, that's all I've got for the, got for the issue. How about you? Only thing else I got uh, outside uh, back cover, the advertisement for the acclaimed judge dread video game. (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, not not a great game but man i loved this ad as a kid I, the with the four uh, the four dark judges up there uh you know judge fire it's let's see if i remember judge fire judge ice judge mortis and judge death i think are the four dark and, judges now i know it's supposed to be based kind of off the movie the original movie with uh, Sylvester Stallone, but were the uh, judges essentially characters more from the uh, 2000 ad comic Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. The the dark judges were from are from 2008. Judge Death is um, a very a very kind of recurring, long term badass guy that uh, Judge Dredd had to deal with. And uh, but a, a lot of this, a lot of it is based on the movie. But there's a lot of stuff that is comes out of 2008 as well because they had to kind of pad out uh, the game because the game is pretty big. 
but it has things directly from there, like the uh, the ABC uh, robots. The AB- ABC robots was actually a- another feature in 2000 AD, and um, I'm gonna mess this up because I think the head robot's name is Rammstein. <laughs> and, um, the ABC robot stands for Atomic, Bacterial, and Chemical. Basically, they were warriors designed to be able to fight in the battlegrounds of the future. They could fight again in any type of uh, battleground where a human couldn't fight. And so they, the ABC robot was put into Judge Dredd the movie as a nod to 2000 AD. You know, they, they take place, the two stories take place in vastly different timelines and wouldn't have crossed over in the pages of 2000 AD. But you fight the ABC robot in the game like you did, like Judge Dredd did in the movie. So I just, I just, I don't know. I just like seeing all this Judge Dredd stuff from around this time because we had such high hopes for the movie and they were all dashed when the movie was released. So, yeah. I just got Dread on DVD, the new one. I haven't had a chance to watch that yet, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I, I've heard good things about it. You know, I don't have, I don't have anything negative to say about Carl Urban. They said that the, the violence is pretty over the top, and it's more in line with the movie. I think Andy Leyland, yeah, uh, watched it. Uh, said it was pretty good. So, uh, yeah, I've got to put it in my Netflix. And if a British guy says a Judge Dread movie is good, it must be good. Uh, exactly. I always trust Andy Leyland. Anything. As, as well as everyone else. <laughs> but uh, why don't we go ahead and take a little break here and we'll uh, plug another promo real quick. And then when we come back, we'll finish up the episode with uh, Justice League America number 101 and Hawkman number 22. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast. Superman in the Bronze Age. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Superman Forever Radio. I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts. Michael Bradley. John Wilson. Billy Hogan. Charlie Niemeyer. J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we are back once again to take a look at uh, part two of the Way of the Warrior storyline, starting in Justice League America number 101. My notes here. Just League America number 101 was cover dated uh, July, July 1995 with a release date of May 16, 1995. Cover price of $1.75 US, 250 Canada, and a pound 25 UK. And the title was Way of the Warrior Part 2 Pressure Cooker. The writer was Gerard Jones. Penciler was, I'm going to mess this up, Chuck Wojakowicz. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Anchors Ken Branch and Andy Park. Sorry, Chuck, I didn't mean to mess up your name. Colorist Gene D'Angelo. Letterer Clem Robbins. Associate Editor Ruben Diaz. Assistant Editor Rags Morales. And Editor Brian Augustin. 
completely ignoring the ending from the Warrior issue, the Assembled Justice Leaguer, including uh, the Assembled Justice League, including Guy Gardner, marvel upon the MacGuffin ship that will take them to the heart of the battle against the Tormox. Hawkman rallies the troops, but Blue Devil has taken over the role as resident dickweed from Guy, and Guy calls him out on his lack of commitment. Peeved at the situation, Guy storms off while Blue Devil phones his agent with a tale of an epic story that he could turn into a film. The bleak blast-offs from the watchtower as some weird robots activate. We're then treated to the subplot of... Is that Power Girl? In Bangkok looking for a son. Okay cut back to the ship where everyone is getting on everyone else's last nerve until the ship which somehow seems to be organic in nature whatever starts to overheat the league call in ice maiden to use her powers to cool off the engine but her presence irks guy as he claims that the league is just trying to replace torah guy and b fight b and nuclon fight ice maiden fire and nuclon and obsidian have awkward homosexual subtextual moments and being the poutiest just leaguer obsidian goes outside the ship ship to sulk, but instead discovers the cloak ship about to attack. Hawkman turns to the ship, but the Romulans crash well, I guess it's not the Romulans, whoever it is crash into them, and the Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011 All Rights of Serve, for the issue launches. Another subplot, this time dealing with more Metamorpho, and is that Crimson Fox? Crimson Fox, yes. Okay. One of Crimson Foxes, anyway. Uh. We cut back to the ship, fight, and where we find the attacking robots were sent out by... Flicker. Of course, this means that the robots are really swishy and easily defeated by being shot out into space as Hawkman blows a hole in one of the ship's walls. Crisis averted, the homoerotic situations continue between Nuclon and Obsidian and Fire and Ice Maiden. Although I'm more interested in the one between Fire and Ice Maiden. <laughs> but I digress. However, the ship has taken damage and must find an emergency place to land. Where do you think that would be, huh? You want to take a guess? Yeah, uh, you do? Yeah. Right, perhaps? Nope. Sorry, oh. it's Thanagar. Oh, seconds. <laughs> oh, I guess his continuity is so messed up, I don't know. But that's the end of the story. This, uh, this was something else. Um, you know, you, you, you made the reference about homoerotic tension, and there's quite a lot of it here, and, and that's that's a little strange for me. Um, I, I'm used to super teams where everybody's pining about who likes who and who doesn't like whom, but normally those are teams of teenagers and not adults, one. And, uh, and two, usually there's at least some heterosexuality in there as well, isn't there? Yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not opposed to homosexuality in books, and it wasn't overt. Uh, it was kind of subtle, and I'm, I'm impressed that Gerard Jones was able to keep it subtle, but I think he's trying to see the idea that uh, eventually Nuclon will come out, and it's pretty obvious here that Ice Maiden... Uh, uh, Obsidian, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I, sorry, yeah. But, and, and, and yes, an Ice Maiden as well, and... But, you know, it's it's one of these it's one of these things where the issue just basically they have to get underway. And so 
what Gerard Jones does is use this as um, as a, a place to do to really explore these relationships. And I don't. And again, I don't, I don't have a problem with uh, the homosexuality either. I mean, um, at this point, I don't think Obsidian was out of the closet. Uh, but it's certainly if reading that reading this issue with the knowledge that he's homosexual, it takes on a whole new type of um, connotation, you know, his his uh, conversations with Nuclon. Uh, so and it's and again, it, it's not just not a whole lot happens here. You know, it, it really kind of feels like, well, we got to get the Justice League in this crossover. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's kind of a lifeboat situation where the characters are all put in one big room where they can't get away from each other, and they're, we have to deal with their relationships with each other, which which isn't bad, but I'm not – I don't like the whole mopey character. I don't like the idea that Obsidian should be a mopey, depressed character and be homosexual because I think – I think too many people would probably relate that together. I mean, I know Obsidian as a character throughout his uh, throughout his history has been a very dark, very troubled character. But now that you add the idea that he might be homosexual and eventually it's come out to to be knowledge to be known that he is gives people a feeling that homosexuals in general are this mopey sort of uncertain self type people. And I I don't like that characterization, but that's just me. Yep. Yeah. The uh, the other odd relationship bit in here is on on page six. After Diana talked down Guy last issue, he's extremely aggressive and angry towards her. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of struck an odd note with me. It's like, you know, Diana's the only one of the team who recognized why you were mad and 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 took culpability, and you're, now you're jumping down her throat. Well, and I think that's just the difference between the writers. I mean, I think Gerard Jones is still coming from the idea of Guy not having matured in the way that Bo Smith has allowed him to be matured. I think Gerard Jones is still writing the Guy Gardner that he wrote Guy Gardner in the early issues of the Green Lantern run, which was kind of a jerk with the heart of gold, but still a jerk nonetheless. Yep, I can see that because he's certainly how he behaves in this. Mm Mm-hmm. And the only other comment I had is uh, page 17, Captain Adam had a line that really made me laugh as they're fighting Flickers robots. He goes, this mighty Morphin Power sucker is taking juice. <laughs> mighty Morphin Power. In 1995, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was still on the air. We uh, The movie was uh, due out. So uh, that this is a, a timely reference right mm-hmm. here. One thing I've got to mention is uh, I don't know if Captain Adam would be able to have the sort of mullet haircut that he has. That is just, I don't care what anyone says about Superman. You want to look at a mullet, look at Captain Adam in these issues. Oh. There are a lot of mullets going on because uh, uh, who the, this big Tormach guy who's with Flicker, he's got a mullet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Captain Adam's got a mullet. Hawkman's got a mullet. Uh, there, there's, there's just, you know, Nuclon's got a, a, a mohawk with a ponytail. There's a lot of poor choices in hair going on. <laughs> oh but yes. The way you know is 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 John Jones who's bald. You know he's he's good to go. I guess Blue Devil's bald too, so he's okay. But <laughs> yeah, I guess it was the nineties, you know. I, I guess it's sad that you know this makes guys' bowl cut thing actually look good now. <laughs> wow. But yeah, that the you know the Just League issues they're here. Uh, but once we get to the next one, we'll kind of see that they actually even split off more and have, you know, kind of less to do even with the uh, 
whole way of the warrior storyline and you know it just kind of feels like they're thrown in but i guess it's a way to bring you know diana and hawkman kind of into the uh overarching story but yeah not a horrible issue but yeah just the the loading down with the sort of homoerotic overtones and just made it a sort of average issue for me but yeah and, and you know it, it didn't it didn't really add much it got him to the next stop mm-hmm. and it introduced that flicker of all people was working with the tormox well I, and I, I think these people must i thought they had standards <laughs> well i guess that's a again flicker is a gerard jones creation so i understand him wanting to try and plug him into any book and he can at any time so uh, and speaking of homoerotic overtones yeah flicker yeah <laughs> well want to move on then yeah definitely definitely hawkman oh. i'm looking forward to all right uh uh, and up next is Hawkman number 22, uh, cover dated July 1995, cover price $2.25 US, $3.25 Canada, uh, one pound fifty UK. Uh, it is titled uh, Way of the Warrior Part 3 Storm Over Thanagar. Uh, William Messner Loeb's handled story, Steve Lieber pencils, Kurt Schultz was inks, Bob Naha was letters. Patricia Mulhillville was colors. Jim Spivey, editor. Cover, the cover was by Ron Lim, who had been doing covers for Hawkman for uh, a little bit in this era. Uh, having landed on the desolated Thanagar, the combined Justice Leagues continue to bicker as Hawkman looks at his birth world, lately ravaged by the Hawk Avatar, which is now housed inside of him. Hawkman and Diana discuss how to proceed, and it is agreed that Hawkman will lead an away team, while Diana, Fire, Blue Devil, and the Martian Manhunter stay behind. Fire does not want to be separated from Ice Maiden, but Diana tells the hot-headed Brazilian that she's doing Ice Maiden no favors by keeping her in tow. As the away team recons the planet, Obsidian tries to talk to Hawkman, but the winged warrior shuts down his attempt at chit-chat. But as Hawkman becomes mazed in his thoughts, Guy Gardner tackles him to the ground as a land-crawling war machine of Tormach design, pouted by a green saber-toothed alien, a leechin, attacks. Directed by Hawkman, Guy Gardner uses his shifty arm gun thing to blow up the tank. Moving forward, the team then makes a startling discovery. The Legion have raised one of the Thanagarian floating cities as their beachhead on the planet. And it seems that they are working with the Tormac, as the case of the city contains a World Eater, a Tormac device which turns the planet's matter into something more suitable for Tormac consumption. But the investigation is cut short by an assault from Thanagarian wingmen. Only these wingmen are not exactly wingmen. Instead, they are corpses strapped into their wing harnesses and used as mobile weapons. The battle is short and swift, with the leaguers taking out their aerial foes. But Hawkman spots that one of the wingmen still lives. Hawkman grabs a survivor out of the air, a Thanagarian near Death's door. The survivor tells Hawkman that the Leechen and Tormak have enslaved him and other Thanagarians in the Temple of Anwar. Hawkman tells the others to return to the ship while he frees his people, but the others will not hear of it and agree to fight. Hawkman makes a plan to send a larger force as a diversion while he and Guy go below to rescue the prisoners. Maxima leads a diversionary team drawing a small army of legions. Meanwhile, Katar and Guy find the prisoners, but the leader of the legions, Marcus, has used them as bait to catch Katar. Our heroes have nothing of it, but before the battle can get too far underway, Diana arrives with the ship threatening to blast a floating city to the ground. Marcus thinks that the Amazon is bluffing, but Guy assures the alien that both he and the, quote, hawk dude are not. 
freeing thousands of prisoners, the Fanagarians intend to rebuild their world, this time based on equality and peace, rather than the tyranny which defined it previously. Hawkman declines to stay, and later when Diana asks him if he wants to return there after the mission, he says that there is nothing on Fanagar for him now. So what'd you think, Sean? I like this. I mean, to be honest, this is really my first uh, sort of uh, actual comic that I've gotten with Hawkman. I've read a lot of his iterations in like Justice League books and you know uh, previous Bronze Age and even Silver Age stuff with the Justice League. But this was uh, my first iteration with him in his own book. Now, I know... I know the Hawkman Carter Hall character, especially from the Justice League stuff. This one seems a bit different. What's going on with this Hawkman? Can you give me a kind of, I don't know, under 30 minute synopsis of what might be going on with the character? Yes, I can. And, and actually, this this is a relatively fresh at this time take on Hawkman. Um now, as you, uh, the original um, Hawkman that most people are familiar with was the Thanagarian Hawkman from the Silver Age, Katar Hall, who was a police officer along with his uh, wife, Shira, and they were the alien hawks that were in the original Justice League of America and ran all the way through the 80s until we got uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths and Hawkworld. And Hawkworld introduced us to the modern uh, Katar Hall and Shira Thal. And these were the, um, you know, and basically Carter Hall, the original reincarnated prince, Hawkman from the Golden Age, took his place throughout all those Justice League stories in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Now, Qatar had a lot of adventures on Earth in the Hawkworld series and then Hawkman Volume 3, which is uh, being published concurrent to uh, Guy Gardner and the Green Lantern books in the 90s and such, started in 1993. Now, when Bill Mesner Loeb's came in, the story was called Godspawn, and it ran right before Zero Hour that basically had the Hawk Avatar. And this Hawk Avatar, also known as the Hawk God, was this great uh, ancient spirit or power. And they're hard, the avatars are hard to explain. They're kind of like uh, totem animals or totem beasts, you know? And he, and the, the Hawk Avatar, destroyed Thanagar and then was coming to Earth because there was Nth Metal on Earth. And basically, the end of that story was that all of the Hawk Warriors... The, that were from on Earth and across every parallel timeline, because this was Zero Hour, were merged with the Hawk Avatar and formed into this new Hawkman. So this Ketar Hall has the memories of Ketar Hall and has the memories of Carter Hall, the, um, the original the Golden Age Hawkman, and every other Hawk warrior throughout all the multiple dimensions. So he's he is now the avatar of the hawk, and he the, spent a lot of his time in his book under Bill Mesner Lopes fighting other avatars. Uh, he fought the avatar of the bear. There's a very kind of infamous story where they turned the minor Aquaman villain, the Scavenger, into the uh, the avatar of the Barracuda, who was a child murderer. Uh, he fought Ca Count Viper, became the avatar of the Viper, and it goes on like this. So this Hawkman is commonly referred to as the merged Hawkman. And one of the uh, things that came out of this, besides his massive physique, as we can see on, on page four, he, he stands a head taller than the Martian Manhunter and, and Diana, is that his wings were now organic. Uh, mm -hmm. The original Hawkman had the wing harness, and then the alien Hawkman had the metal wing harness. These actually sprout from his back whenever he needs them. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because that was one of the tropes of the Silver Age that the the Hawkman wings were actually the nth metal thing, and Hawkman would have to strap them on. But these are actually organic; they sort of pop out of his back whenever he needs to fly. It's, 
And uh, and he also now has eyes. We saw this at the end of the Justice League uh, issues that he now has eyes like an actual hawk. Hmm. He has yellow eyes like a hawk. So uh, so again, it's this was a this was still a new a new thing for Hawkman at this time. This merged character that had um, they they had a bill um, right before Bill Mesner Loeb's came in. There was a two part story by Paul Kupperberg that destroyed something called the Netherworld. The Netherworld was kind of this uh, bohemian society of metahumans in Chicago that weren't interested in, you know, playing superhero dress up, but they were outcasts from society. And the Netherworld played a, a very important role in Hawkworld, but it kind of been kind of a secondary thing in Hawkman Volume 3. So Kupperberg came in and destroyed the Netherworld. And then uh, during Godfall, uh, Thanagar was destroyed by the Hawk Avatar. So basically... Mesner Loeb's was kind of clearing the decks a little bit for this merged Hawkman that was going to have a new focus and a new direction. And that was what was going on in, in the book up to this. Neat. It, it is pretty neat. I'm, I'm reading it now and it's, you know, is it perfect? It's, it's not perfect, but no Hawkman era ever is really. But I, I mean, I like it. It's, it's a new take. And, and for a character that for so many people is just confusing, it's actually fairly streamlined because it combines everybody into one. And it gives them a, a very direct focus and purpose. It's like, okay, you're on a war with the avatars. In fact, in the first couple of pages, we get um, kind of a reference to that, you know, that he's off on a mission, and um, and we see his mo- we see his mom Naomi uh, in one of the subplot pages that I didn't cover because it really doesn't tie into the story at all. Well, but it has a naked girl in a bathtub, so I'd like to cover it if possible. Well, yeah, the Beryl Jansing, she was a character that had appeared only the, in the previous issue as she was a model and an actress that Ketar met at a party that she seemed kind of interested in. And at this point, Ketar and Shaira are separated. They're kind of estranged because Shaira can't, uh, her nth metal wings were consumed by the Hawk Avatar. So she is actually in Detroit just as a, a gun-toting vigilante, actually, it's kind of, uh, because she runs afoul of the female vigilante, the second vigilante. Oh yeah, and it's it's yeah, it's kind of a one-shot story of of Hawk Girl kicking ass and taking names in Detroit, which I would read that book, but you know, I, I'd read any book with Shiera Thal in it. She's you know, Hawk Woman is awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but do you um want to get going on on notes that you got? Yeah, sure. Uh, I I'm really glad to see uh, Lim and Austin do the cover. They're really great artists. In fact, we will see a bit of Ron Lim coming up here in a couple of weeks doing some artwork on the Green Lantern book. Uh, I like his artwork. It's very crisp, clean lines. And Terry Austin, you can't go wrong with Terry Austin in your stuff. Yeah. The characters all look really good. Uh, Wonder Woman even looks good in her, or not Wonder Woman, Diana looks good in her, in her outfit. And I think the... Uh, I think the leather jacket actually helps it, the sort of Wonder Woman-esque jacket, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, everyone looks good on the cover. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, what you know, what was going on with uh, Hawkman's Native American mother, uh, how uh, that kind of come into play. Well, the, Naomi plays a big role in Hawkman Volume 3, uh, Hawkman's origin, the, the post-crisis Katar Hall. He is the son of of a Thanagarian uh, wingman and uh, a native, a, a native American human. Okay. So that was uh, in early in volume three, he would ask for the spirit animals to guide him. And that was just from some of the native American influence from his mother. And Naomi has played a, a fairly 
constant role in the book. She's been in there more constantly even than Shaira has. Uh, so her her appearance here is in line with uh, her character in the book. And once he became the Hawk Avatar, he kind of ga- gained a kind of a new supporting cast. And Naomi became she moved. She had been living in Arizona, but she had moved to Chicago. And now she's staying with uh, Kitar in Chicago, well, along with um, she's got a, a friend of hers, another Native American named Dennis and uh, a metahuman who has three arms named Lefty. Who actually, it's uh, he uh, for a while I put on a mask as a masked vigilante named um, Bar Sinister and uh, used a crowbar as his weapon. So that's why he was Bar Sinister. <laughs> and it's like you have three on like, on- like the underdog villain. The Simon uh, Bar Sinister was the uh, the underdog villain. I was gonna say, but uh, uh, okay. <laughs> but it's like he had, but he has three arms and he's just wearing a mask. And he's like, we know who you are. <laughs> you have three arms. <laughs> It's like, are you sure? <laughs> uh, okay, well, there's that. But yeah, I think uh, it makes sense to have uh, a Native American uh, a relative if he's going to have these sort of uh, dealings with uh, avatars or totems. So that makes sense in the Hawkman book. So yeah, that that completely makes sense. Um, page five, we get a really nice character, a bunch of character moments with uh, the sort of JLA arguing, you know, Guy and Fire arguing, and I like that uh, down at the bottom of the panel, we've got uh, Wally, of course, constantly eating and mm. drinking Tang. That's that's yeah. awesome. And Blue Devil, of course, is uh, completely uninterested in the whole uh, war going on with the Tormox and what's happening on Thanagar, and he's reading Variety magazine. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I, no no deference to Shag, but I don't get Blue Beetle. I guess maybe I maybe if I read more of him, I'd understand it. But yeah, that, he doesn't do it for me. Yeah, Blue, Blue Devil is. Uh, I don't. I never read much of him either. I I like the absolute Beetle ad on the back of Variety. Mm. <laughs> in the nineties, it was a, you saw absolute ads on the back of every magazine you picked up. Oh, exactly. Up. And and I know in my school, we had people that put them up in their lockers and they'd get in trouble, you know, because it was an alcohol ad and stuff. I love they've they've traveled literally across the galaxy. Guy and Fire still arguing. <laughs> it's like, they can't. well, able it, guys. <laughs> You're not going to settle anything at this point. <laughs> uh, eventually, the uh, arguing will be kind of a uh, charming lover spat. I don't want to spoil anything ahead, but uh, there might be a bit more going on between their. You know, there might be a makeup, uh, yeah. uh, something going on between Guy and Fire, but uh, uh, that's spooling ahead a bit. Um, I'm moving on to page eight. Do you have anything in between there? Uh, just again on page six, note the size of Qatar next to Diana, you know, uh, on the, the bottom panel five there. Oh, like yeah. Head and shoulders taller than Diana. And this is, again, Qatar Hall originally was a fairly normal sized guy. I mean, he's well built because he was a wingman, but he wasn't gigantic. Yeah, so no. the idea of Hawkman as this big, giant, burly barbarian that um, has become his signature look starts here. Yeah, he's got to be at least. I mean, if you've considered Diana to be at least, you know, five, six, you know, or something, he's got to be at least seven feet. Yeah. So that's that's pretty massive. Um, moving on to page eight. The whole mopey thing again with Obsidian just it bugs me. I I don't like. I I can understand that as you know, 
of being a part of his character, but and him being a dark character, but it it's just getting a bit too much for me here. So it doesn't really inure me to the character. But I do like that they're flying around on little uh, Mister Miracle, yeah, uh, apocalypse type flying pads thing. Well, that's so. got to be a callback. Mister Miracle was in the Justice League for a while in the post crisis era, so. Mm-hmm. So maybe he just had some of those laying around, and they just uh, opted to use them here. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I like I like Hawkman shutting down uh, Obsidian when he says, "I do not have to keep you entertained." <laughs> you know, uh, K- Katar when he was created by Tim Truman and written by um, uh, John Ostrander in Hawkworld was he he was a much more sort of reasonable character who was willing to, to listen to others and, and look at other points of view. Um, I know some have said, and, and again, I don't want to be political that it was the liberal take on Hawkman after being such a, you know, hard line, you know, uh, right and wrong law and order type character for so long. Yeah. But under, under lobes, he has, he has really gone back to, I don't have time for this. It's like the ad, you know, uh, all that there is is the next mission kind of thing and that that was he you know he he ignores his personal relations he ignores those around him everything is about what the next fight is since the hawk avatar has, has taken part in him and this is something that's explored a lot in the book under lobes and you know that to the point that how much of it is katar and how much of it is, is the hawk avatar you know what's well, that's an interesting thing I, the, this kind of makes me want to pick up more hawkman stuff but... i mean it's it's good stuff it 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 after after he after the end of volume three it is almost completely ignored it is completely tossed out the window when hawkman is resurrected in the pages of jsa in the early 2000s and what would lead to um the volume four the solo book by jeff johns and uh um uh, uh james robinson excuse me yeah that, you know, and, and that handled went back to kind of the Golden Age style. We kind of got away from a lot of the alien Hawkman stuff for a long time. So, yeah. uh, moving on a bit uh, to uh, page eleven. Let's see, a a floating city populated by Hawk people. Hmm. <laughs> Where have I seen that before? That I think that would make a good movie. Maybe a good movie with Brian Blessed. You know, though, I, I will say this. That Thanagar had floating cities back in the Silver Age. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm cer- and I'm certain, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm certain there would be people who was like, oh, well, the, the Flash Gordon comic, you know, the strip from, you know, the 1930s had the uh, Hawk people with their floating cities. So I'm certain there could be back and forth anyway. But yeah, it just kind of, uh, it just kind of struck me as humorous that the Hawk people would have floating cities. I, I love the detail on it where we see the, uh, the lichen and the, and, uh, the plant matter growing all over it that now the lichens have raised it oh yeah uh, the little architectural details and the cracks and, and uh, the obvious bit of decay on the city i really like that page that looks really nice oh yeah the artwork the artwork in the hawkman book is really good it's very it's not as detailed but it's uh it, it, i guess it doesn't have as much i want to say uh over-the-top sort of 90s look. It's very... It's just very comic book and I'm liking it a lot more than... Uh, uh, sadly, even more than the Guy Gardner book, but uh, yeah. it's good-looking stuff. Lieber was... I mean, he, he drew... He draws really good superheroics, I think, but he doesn't... He, he's kind of grounded in his style, you know? I don't think it's, uh, you know, too outrageous a lot of times. Yeah, it looks very... It, more towards realism. It, it's, it's more... Uh, 
It's it's more Garcia Lopez than Rob Lightfield. Uh, let's see. We went on to page 13. I was like, oh, crap. We've got Black Lantern Hawk people about a decade too soon. What the heck? You think Jeff John's kind of taking a... What? Well, yes and no. I mean, my first thought was it looked like something that Ray Harryhausen would have done. You oh, know? yeah. That would have worked as well. Skeleton uh, wired into a flying machine like this and wearing the, the helmet of the wingman like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I love that it's only part of a skeleton. The one that we see, you can see it doesn't have any. It doesn't have the the legs below the knees. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I completely, I completely missed that. But this is also another thing with skeletons that you know, when the body does decompose and the tissue decomposes away, there's nothing really holding the body parts together. So why they'd stay together is beyond me. But yeah, that's just the the anatomical scientist or anatomical college student talking. Uh, and I like that they also, you see that there's, uh, they've, they've wired them up into them. There's machinery and bits in the, the stomach cavity. Mm-hmm. The one Thanagarian there. Yeah. And I think that they, they put hair on it. So if you look at it underneath the helmet, yes. it's got a, a head of hair. And it's like, that's, okay, that's just creepy. <laughs> that's all that is. Well, maybe maybe the uh, maybe the uh, hair hadn't, uh, or maybe the skin hadn't decayed off the skull yet, and it's just still there, and it just wired the helmet and everything on there. So, I don't know, yeah. but yeah, that is uh, that is. And, and this this page also is interesting in that it does have a couple of things that are very um, alien Hawkman specific. First off, the wingmen. Mm-hmm. And the wingmen, if if you don't know, the the wingmen were. On, on Thanagar, before it was destroyed by the Hawk Avatar, basically it was an ex, the, the post-crisis Thanagar was a very stratified society where you had um, the high, the ruling class, and then you had the downsiders. And the, the wingmen were the paramilitary police force uh, that, that basically kept law and order. They were very similar, actually, to the judges from uh, Judge Dredd in 2000 AD, in that the wingmen had, you know, they, they on the street, they were judge, jury, and executioner. And so you did not screw with the wingmen. They were not something to be taken lightly. And uh, and so here the idea of the of the wingmen being completely wiped out, and now their their corpses being used as weapons is something to a hawk fan that would be startling. The other thing that's interesting is that Hawkman uses his pistol, and you see the pistol completely blows apart the wing harness. And then he makes a comment on the next page that the graviton pistol is out of charge. The graviton pistol was a standard-issue sidearm for wingmen that Ketar Hall and Shaira Thal carried all throughout Hawkworld. And when he became the merged Hawkman, he picked, uh, the, that was the only part of his Vanagarian uh, uniform that he kept, was his graviton pistol. And the graviton pistol, is a, it, can, it can fire like through buildings, but it can only be fired like two or three times before it runs out of charge. Is there any way that they can recharge it? Because I remember later in the, you know, not to spoil ahead, but later in the issues, he mentions it again that he's only got like a couple of shots with it. So yeah, it, it basically just needs time to build its charge back up. Apparently. Okay. But he's like the, the helmet is Carter Hall's helmet. That's why it, it's the old school style helmet. The uh, the wing harness is is uh, a variant is just basically leather straps. The Qatar was mm-hmm. the sword that he, the, the punching sword that he adopted while on Earth. And so it's all taken from different bits and pieces of the character. But the Graviton pistol was his one tie still to Thanagar at this point. 
So it, it, anytime he pulls it out, it's it usually is like I said to punch through a building or something. <laughs> so, and I, and I like this fight here as well, where we see them just kind of we see Gardner just mash out the thing's face. With his hand as like a, um, I don't know, I don't know what he's doing there. It looks like he turned his hand into a bomb almost on yeah. uh, 14. And then Captain Adam and then Maxima just chucking a rock at it. <laughs> like, you know, like uh, like uh, Killer Croc. I edible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, moving on, page 15 again. <sighs> Freaking Obsidian. Yeah. Yeah. Besides, anyone can die in bed. Shut up, Obsidian. Just I'm, just go back to the ship and mope. I don't want to hear your whiny crap. Uh-huh. I've got to listen to my Morrissey album. <laughs> I do like that panel for everybody's kind of body language and expressions. Yeah. Yeah, Lieber does a good job with uh, the expressions of the character the space. The only one who doesn't really look like he has much of an expression is Captain Adam on this panel. But, yeah, everyone else you can tell that they're they've got different feelings about what's going on. And it's, it's good artwork here, but that's captain Adam too. You know, that's true. Even his response, everyone's got a, a funny witty comment and captain Adam just says, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I guess very succinct. So, you know, you can credit him with that again. What like Supergirl said on that episode of justice league unlimited, how do you take the stick out corporal? <laughs> his response, it's captain. Oh, <laughs> Let's see. Uh, where am I going? Page eighteen, uh, panels five and six. We've got uh, Maxima giving this line as you know after saying, "What do we do now?" She goes, "Do we do what every warrior does when her mission is completed or accomplished? Run." <laughs> and I'm like, I think that is the crappiest you know tagline since Storm said, "What happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning?" That was just uh, uh, that. Unfortunately, was bad writing by Messed Lobes here. But that really uh, is the only misstep I think here in this book. Well, and you know, it it would it would I could almost buy it from somebody else, but from Maxima, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, Maxima is as much as a warrior as any of the other major characters in this book. So I yeah I don't get it. Maxima would say, "What do we do? We fight till they're all dead." Yes. <laughs> but uh. That's pretty much my notes. Uh, up until the end, it's just a big fight between uh, uh, with uh, Kitar and Guy just going in and mopping up these Legion characters. So I, I love on page 19 that it I love that it is Guy and Hawkman. First off, because admittedly, two of the books in the crossover are Guy Gardner and Hawkman. So mm-hmm. that makes sense. But I, I just love the two of them dropping in uh, and they see the uh, all the Thanagarians in the, the cell. And then the, the the final panel there, that bottom panel, where the Legion commander is uh, leading his men, and we see in shadow in the background just Katar with his, his wings and then Guy uh, crouching in front of him. And my note for that was just Hawkman and Guy Gardner, two warriors right there. Mm-hmm. These are not, at this point, they're not superheroes. You know? No, they're, 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 not, they're not trying to do anything heroic. They're going in there to bust some heads. Yeah. And that is awesome. Yeah, and then uh, again in, on page twenty, another guy Gardner to the face, right? <laughs> Fakum as he blasts the Legion guy's head off, and it's like, youch. <laughs> and 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 Hawkman's not better because in the on the next panel he eviscerates a guy with his katar. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I just noticed this on a couple of the books, especially the Guy Gardner and the Hawkman book here. 
I don't notice the comic code authority anywhere on the cover. Uh, taking a look at my cover for the Justice for the Justice League when the code's there, but I think for the Guy Gardner and the Hawkman books, they're off. So they might have just skirted the code, or these books may not have been code approved, so they were able to get rid of or get away with some of the uh, excessive for the time violence. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, the blood is black in this, mm-hmm. but I mean, look at that amount of blood there. He, oh, I, yeah. uh, he gutted that guy, mm-hmm. decapitate him. And again, and again, it's like I've said before in the shows, this isn't, and I know I've harped about this and uh, you and I have sort of gone back and forth about it, but there has been a, a tendency in modern comics to get too overly graphic. Now, this violence, I think, is pretty graphic, but it's not so gory that it's something that I'd be afraid of letting my kids take a look at. You know, I would show them, uh, I guess, what it was an issue like 42 of Green Lantern, where Black Hand basically puts his little uh, thing up to his head and blows his brains out on panel. I mean, this is good violence and it's good gore, but it's in a subdued way where it's not just uh, gore for gore's sake. It's not exploitative. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, th- this is this is no different than you would have seen in a, uh, a 1970s issue of Savage Sword of Conan. As yes. Far as the amount of bloodletting, especially uh, with the black blood, that being a black and white book. So, and and again, with these two characters, it's it's not only it's it's done in a a, uh, a manner that's consistent with their character too. Mm-hmm. Guy Gardner and Hawkman, as like I said, these guys are in combat. Combat brings out the best, and that—that that was my note for the, the for page twenty-one, is that, you know, for for Guy Gardner, who just a couple issues ago, was was you know had nothing good to say about Hawkman when he tried to stop him at the JLAHQ. Now the two of them are like brothers in arms, mm-hmm. and and Combat has brought out the the warrior spirit in them. So that they are, then this is this is where they belong, and they both seem to know it. Guy seems to relish it a little bit, whereas Hawkman sometimes relishes it and sometimes is more pensive about it. But it's very clear that at this point in their lives, this is where they belong on the battlefield. Exactly, and I like the fact that they're that they uh, over the past over the two or three issues here that they've kind of come together and they realize that what they're doing is similar and what the, you know, their basic motivations are pretty much the same. So yeah, good development of the characters. And then the coda I really like because it, it can kind of continues what Loeb's was doing as far as separating Hawkman from Thanagar and the very type of uh, pathos heavy ending where he says there is nothing on Thanagar for me now is, you know, it, in a lot of ways it's kind of a capstone to, where the journey that Ketar had been on, where it was like, well, you're, you were born on Thanagar, but you, you know, your mother was was uh, uh, Earthling. You know, how, where do you fit in and what do you uh, belong to? Do you belong to the tyranny of Thanagar? Do you belong to the liberty of Earth? And so that was kind of a character arc for him. So even though that we brought Thanagar back from being just wiped out, not even uh, six months earlier... Uh, I do like that it's he's at the same time removing himself from it. I mean, I thought overall this was a really good self-contained story as part of the larger crossover. I thought, you know, we had uh, really good characterization. The story held together really good for the page. It, it didn't derail us too much, even though it really was very self-contained. 
Yeah, I, unlike uh, the what we got in the Justice League issue and what we'll get next time in the Justice League issue, uh, it's it is a separate story, and but it does work in the overall overall arc. So, and plus the you know, the fact that the art was really good and it you know definitely helps with it. But yeah, I I I really like this. So this was good. But uh, that covers all the issues we have for this for basically this time out. Uh, Luke, I'm going to ask you uh, if you'd like to come back uh, next week and uh, maybe cover the uh, rest of this stuff. Oh, I'd love to. That'd be great. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to go ahead and call it a uh, well, a night or a day or whatever time that you guys listen to it and say that we're going to see you next Friday on another episode of Just One of the Guys, and we'll catch you then. Bye, everyone. Ciao. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Patty Smythe and Scandal with the song The Warrior. Now, as always, you can pick up this song from iTunes or whatever MP3 downloading site you'd like to download from, but probably the best place to get it from would be Amazon.com. Their prices are great, their selection is awesome, and the wonderful thing about it is, if you go to 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com and click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page... When you go to purchase the song from Amazon, a little bit of money that you spend at Amazon will be sent back to the Two True Freaks website, making sure that their podcasts stay on the air. And isn't that what we all want in life? I think it is.